came across uh, a story this week. We are doing a two-session uh, two series. It's a very short series. Um, it's called Crossing the Line. See it there, Crossing Over. Um, and uh, it's in preparation for our big party two weeks from today at 9 o'clock in the morning at that lake in Long Valley. Um, we will have uh, the address sent out to you by email. It'll be on the website and all the rest. But in preparation for that, uh, we're doing a two-week look at what it looks like to cross over the line of faith as a believer. So uh, next week, I'm going to be talking about specifically about baptism, how we baptize, why we baptize, why we baptize um, uh, believers and what we do with children and all the rest and how that relates to other faiths and things that we grew up with and all the rest. Talking about that next week, so uh, be back for that. But this week, I wanted to talk about the concept of crossing over the line of faith. And as I studied it, I came across a, a pretty fascinating story um, about a guy named Blondin. Blondin was a, a tightrope walker. He was a very famous guy. Uh, you haven't heard of him because he was very famous in the 1800s. He was famous before there was TV or radio uh, or Internet. But he was, in the, um, in the American culture, in the pop culture of the day, he was the, you know, the Kardashians of the day. Um, maybe a better way to put it is he was the Nick Walenda of the day, right? Do you guys know who Nick Walenda is? Have you seen these, this guy? He uh, walked across the Grand Canyon a couple of years ago, and a couple of weeks ago, the, the, the Eye of Orlando was a giant um, Ferris wheel they just built in Orlando, and he walked on that. And, you know, I tried to watch him going over the Grand Canyon one day, and I couldn't watch it. It just was freaking me out so much that my kids were watching it, and they would yell into me in the dining room, letting me know if he had fallen yet. Um, never fell. But uh, that's who Blondin was. Blondin was, you know, the Nick Wallenda before there was a Wallenda. And back around the year 1860s, he really hit his, his peak, man. Because, and you see, we've got some newspaper coverage of it, I found, of the day. Right? Check that out. Blondin crossed Niagara Falls. And he crossed from the Canadian side over to the, uh, the American side. And this was a big deal. Now, you got to remember, you couldn't market on TV or radio or even beyond your region with newspaper. Yet, it was such a big deal in that day that 10,000 people had gathered on the American side of this, the U.S. side, to watch Blondin make his way from the Canadian side over Niagara Falls to the U.S. side. And when he gets there, there the crowd, and, you know, when I've watched these guys, I don't know if it's when you've seen it, but I can feel my heart like it. I don't like it. I can feel my adrenaline pumping, and I get a little nervous. And that's what this crowd was going through, watching him cross. And it took a long time. And when they got there, man, the crowd just erupted. And, and they released this. You know what I mean? Uh, this energy. And the place was going crazy. And the crowd starts to chant his name. Blondin, Blondin, Blondin. Now, if you know me, I, I think the only way to make stories come alive is to enter them, not just tell you them. So we're going to come, we're going we're to enter the story, but we've got to make it real. So uh, my friend Amber is with us this morning. So let's make it real. Let's pretend Amber just crossed the Niagara with us, right? We're whipped into a frenzy, and we get a little chant going for Amber. Would you do, would you do it with me? Amber, Amber, Amber. That's right. They're whipped. At, they stopped it perfectly, too. They're all whipped into a frenzy about this. And Blondin, well, he's soaking it up because he's a true showman. And so as the crowd starts to go crazy, and just when he gets them up, you know, whipped into their perfect thing, he goes, he shuts them up. And he looks out at them and he says, he says, I am Blondin. Do you believe in me? And the crowd shouts, yes, yes, we believe, we believe. And the crowd responds over and over, we believe, we believe, 
We believe. And he quiets the crowd down again. And he says, I am now going to cross the rope back over to the Canadian side. And I am going to carry someone with me. Do you believe I can do that? And the crowd rises up and they begin to chant. Well, let's enter the story. We believe. We believe. We believe. Oh, they're all whipped into a fervor, right? And then Blondin looks around and he goes, he quiets them down again. And he says, now I need to know which one of you human beings is going to be the one that is going to cross over with me. And there's dead silence. Everybody kind of doesn't make eye contact anymore. All you hear is the water rushing over the falls. And it, some awkward time goes by. It's a true story. You can look this up when you go home. It's a true story. He has some, some time goes by and, and nobody's moving. So his business manager, who was watching his gravy train kind of run ashore, he decides, well, I better step forward on this. So his business manager steps forward. Blondin puts his business manager on his shoulder and for three and a half hours inches his way with his business manager on his shoulders back across Niagara Falls. Crazy story in the year 1860 or so. But it's a true story. Tens of thousands of people, or 10,000 people, stood there that day. And 10,000 people cheered wildly and chanted, we believe, we believe, we believe. But the truth is, only one did. And that's the essence of faith. That's the essence of belief. It's to be committed to something beyond mere words. See, commitment in someone, commitment to someone, is not that I accept certain facts about someone. I, I'm committed to my wife. It doesn't mean that I just make, I, I believe in certain facts about my wife. It means that I have given my life to my wife. That's what commitment means. It carries with it something that, that goes beyond uh, accepting certain facts, but giving your life into the hands of the one whom you say you believe in. And so as believers, as Christians, what makes you a Christian is not just believing the right stuff, but are you committed? Have you given your life over into the hands, literally into the hands of the one that you say you're committed to? And that's why I am this morning, at least symbolically, if I could, if, we had, if I was better at construction than this, um, I am symbolically sitting on a fence this morning. Because here's what I, I feel like, uh, just this dialogue that I've been having with God in my own heart a little bit, uh, about us, we, in our church, um, and I don't think it's any different than any other church, but that when it comes to Jesus, when it comes to being a disciple of Jesus, when it comes to being uh, like a follower of Jesus, I'm starting to, to think that we may have collected a lot of fence sitters. You know what a fence sitter is? Right? It's like somebody that, when it comes to making any kind of a commitment or a decision, you know, they don't really want to go uh, firmly in any one direction, so they just kind of do their best to stay right in the middle, to sit on the fence in between indecision and full commitment. Now, if you know the Bible, the Bible is full of stories about people like you and I that fence sit when it comes to God. Now, in the Old Testament, I'll give you one. There's a man named Joshua. Some of you know the story of Joshua. 
Joshua follows Moses, right? And so Moses leads his people out of Egypt. If you've seen Prince of Egypt or Ten Commandments, he leads his people out of Egypt. But he's not allowed to bring the people of God into the promised land. That was reserved for Joshua. And so Joshua takes the people into this land. This is a, a heroic triumph for the people of God. But something happens. Listen up, church. Something happened to the people of God when they got to the promised land. Joshua started to notice something. He, he started to get frustrated with the people because he believed that they were falling into, in a sense, uh, some spiritual indifference in their lives. He looked and he noticed that they weren't gathering for worship anymore of the one true God who had rescued them and saved them and brought them to this place. They had kind of given up on that. It, it wasn't a priority. You know, there's a lot of things to do in the promised land. I mean, they're busy people. Like, grass is nice in the promised land. Be Can you imagine the beaches in the promised land? And so, the gathering and worshiping of God, that wasn't that big a deal anymore. And You know, these were people that had been saved. They had been reached because they had been crying out to God. But they weren't crying out to God anymore. And, and Joshua started to notice that. And here's what bothered Joshua more than anything else. Is that he had led these people into this land thinking that these people would, in a sense, take this land, not just physically, but culturally. That they would be agents of this God. That they would be a spreader of who he was and, and his life and, and, and his ways. But instead, what was happening to these people was, they were becoming, uh, they were morphing into the town. So much so, that when they would go to town, they would wind up buying some of the idols and the trinkets that, that the people in, in, in the town had. And they would bring them home to their house and they'd set them up on their, their, um, their shelves and in their kitchens and on their window over their sink if they had such a thing. And, and they began to mix their belief in the one true God with all the other gods that everybody else around them seemed to be worshiping. And Joshua just gets to a point where he can't stand that anymore. So because of their indifference, because in a sense they had taken a step back from full commitment and began to ride this fence, they began to firmly place themselves on it, he calls them back together, the leaders of the 12 tribes that, that had come into the land. And he says to them, listen, he goes, you guys, you remember what God did for you, right? He says, you remember, right, that it was God, that while we were enslaved in Egypt, it was the one true God, the, the one of the scriptures, the one we cried out to, you remember when we were getting abused by the Egyptians, right? You remember how they used to kill our children? Remember how they used to make us work day in and day out in the desert sun and in the heat and make brick after brick after brick after brick? You remember how they beat us? Remember we cried out to God and, and that God, the, the one true God, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, that God, you remember that? He was the God that heard our cries. He was the one that, that set us free. He goes on, he, he says to those leaders, he goes, you know, I know you've kind of gotten to a place where you're sitting on a fence here about this, but you remember it was God that sent the ten plagues, right? It was, it was God that arranged for our escape out of Egypt, and it was, it was God that, that parted the Red Sea so we could pass on dry land. And you remember it was God that arranged for us to come into this land that's full of vineyards, and, and we didn't plant any of them, and full of, of olive trees, and, and we eat from them every day, but they were here long before we got here. And, and now you're sitting on a spiritual fence. You're not giving God glory anymore. You're playing around with idols from foreign lands. See, those idols aren't the ones that got you here. In chapter 24 of his book in the Bible, 
He says this. This is a quote from the book in chapter 24. He says, now fear the Lord and serve him with all of your faithfulness. Throw away the gods of, that your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But, there's a big but, church. But, if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, if something's happened now, well then choose for yourselves this day whom you're going to serve. You see, Joshua says, get off the fence. Are you going to serve the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates, or are you going to serve the god of the Amorites, the land in which you're living? And then he utters famous words. See, we have these words in our kitchen, most of us. If you've been around the church, you see these words everywhere. People crochet them and put them on pillows and stuff. You can probably get it down at the craft show. Somebody, I guarantee this is on a craft show item just down the street right now. Joshua utters some very famous words. He says, but as for me and for my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And Joshua gathers these people up. He says, look, you've got to get off the fence. You have to make a decision about God. Who are you going to serve? Who are you crying out to? Are you, are, are you more interested in the gods of, of this culture, of your city, of your country, of, of your world, or of the one true God? I, I don't know who it is, but you need to choose. You should do it today. But here's what I'm going to tell you. I'm going to out myself as it, as it goes for me and my life and my job and my wife and my kids and my home. I'm off the fence. I'm serving God. So he gets off the fence. He says, we're going to serve the God who brought us here. We're going to serve the God that we cried out to. We're going to serve the God that, that we prayed to. We're going to serve the God that delivered us. We're going to serve the God that heard our prayers. We're going to serve the one who brought us to the promised land. That's what I'm going to do. Me and my house, that's what we're going to do. And he challenges the people. He says, them, wherever you are, I don't care. But you need to make a decision. You need to get off the fence. And as you know, the story, a little further in the story, this kind of Fence-sitting talk moves thousands of them to get off the fence and to go home to their houses and take out all the idols that they begin to mix with God. And we do this, okay? We mix our own idols up with, with, with the one true God. And they sweep their houses of them and they return their hearts to the one true God and they cry out to him again and they worship him again. And what happens is all of the things that they had been searching for, peace and prosperity, wind up becoming theirs as they find the one true God, as they return to him. But somebody had to give the people a good fence-sitting talk. See, the Bible is full of fence-sitting talks. There's another great one in 1 Kings. This one's almost funny. Some of you might know the story. It's once again of the people of God, the people that God has wooed and called to his own and saved. People like you. And me. You see, they're just like us. And once again, they fall into a sense of spiritual apathy, of spiritual complacency. A place where they're not so much interested in, in the things of God or the instructions of God or the desires of God, but they're more interested in the things that the world could offer them, the, the peace and the prosperity that the world would give them. And, and so because they're trying to, in a sense, make friends with the world, they don't want to face any persecution, they want to keep peace with everybody, what they decide they're going to do is they're going to mix the one true God with the gods of their culture. Now, in, the, in their culture, their God was Baal. In fact... Uh, Ahab, who was the king of Israel at the time, he himself had begun to worship both God and Baal. He had begun to mix up this faith. 
I'll sit on the fence and I'll have a little of Baal and a little of God. Just don't make me move in one direction or the other. And Elijah comes along. It's funny because it, uh, the king hates Elijah. He, he, he calls him some funny names in the book. Uh, Elijah comes along. He says, we have to have a fence that's cut. So here it is in 1 Kings 18.21. Scripture says, Elijah went before the people and said, how long, how long are you going to waver between two opinions? How long are you going to sit on that fence? If the Lord is God, then you should follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. Get off the fence. And you know what the people said? Nothing. Because the people, because human beings, love to sit on fences. Choose this day, Israel, whom you're going to serve. Fence sitter talk. How long are you going to waver between two opinions? Fence sitter talk. How long are you going to wonder if your best thinking, your best efforts, your desires to get peace and prosperity and significance and protection from our own efforts, how long are you going to do that, yet walk around and keep saying, and I believe in Jesus too. And I'll have a little bit of Jesus mixed in with this too. Because then my life will be full. So Elijah says to them this. This is a funny story. He says, here's what I want you to do. First, sadly, he goes, this is Elijah speaking to, to Israel. He says, I'm the only one of the Lord's prophets left. Baal has 450 people. He goes, this is what we're going to do. He says, go get two bulls. In fact, let Baal's prophets choose the first. They can pick whichever one they want first. And, and cut the bull into two pieces and put it on the wood, but don't set fire to it. And whatever bull you leave me, I will do the same, and I'll put it on the wood, but I'm not going to set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I'm going to call on the name of the Lord, the God who answers by fire. He's God. And the people said, well, yeah, I mean, that would make sense. Let's do it. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls, prepare it first, since there's so many of you, just measly me. And when, you, when you're all there, when you get all your people together, when you make sure everybody's there, I used to say to my kids, uh, we used to play, can you hold me down? I'd get down on the ground when they were little, right? And they'd all, now they could hold me down. But when they were little, I'd get on the ground, I'd say, we call it best position. I'd say, get your best position, Right? And they'd usually, like, you know, sit on my head. And I'm like, that's your best position? <laughs> you know? And, uh, and so this is Elijah going, get your best position. There's 400, you got a lot of people now. You go and get ready as best you can. And he says, call on the name of your God. Don't light the fire. So they took the bowl and they prepared it. And, they, and then they called on the name of Baal from morning, from sun up till noon. Baal. Answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar that they had made. And I love this. Elijah, he's watching this go on before him. And Elijah is fully confident of what's going to happen. He knows the one true God. He's not actually sitting on any fence. He starts to egg them on. He almost starts to make fun of them. In fact, this is so funny. You can't believe this is the NIV translation of the Bible. I'm reading it going, I can't believe this is in the Bible, right? At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he's God. Perhaps he's deep in thought or busy or traveling. <laughs> Maybe he's sleeping and you've got to wake him up. So they shouted louder. And then they thought to themselves, well, maybe, maybe we, should, 
we should show God how serious we are. We'll begin to cut ourselves because, you know, God, he might be angry. And so maybe we show them that we're really sad about what we've done. Maybe we'll cut ourselves and we'll repent that way. And so it was their custom, and, and they, they cut themselves. The blood flowed. And then midday passed, and you can picture Elijah sitting there eating a sandwich. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. They did it all day long. But there was no response. Listen to this. No one answered. No one paid attention. Have you ever felt like that? You ever called on the name of the wrong God? Run around chasing after it? Chasing, giving yourself fully over to it maybe? And nothing. Now, I don't know what your God is. Our, our issue is we all make idols, right? We all have these idols that we, we, we raise up in our lives. My issue is, is security. I would love to trust God more for security than I do, but man, I... It's so much easier to trust myself or trust my, my bank account. And I do a lot to try to make this work for me. And sometimes I look silly running around my stuff. Provide for me. Take care of me. I, if I thought of a story as I was writing this talk, uh, many of you know I worked in the financial industry before I started doing this. And, and uh, I, I, um, I worked for Washington Mutual Bank. It was one of the top 15 banks in the country. Very big bank. And uh, as part of that bank... When I first started working there, I got employee stock shares. And, uh, and, and I think I paid $12 or $14 per share for that stock. Now, I was n not that high. Uh, it was early in my career, so I didn't have a lot of this. But this stock went from $12 or $14 up to $47. And it hovered around $47 for a couple of years. I didn't have a lot of money, but this was enough money that I said, you know, this, if this gets to 50 I could put this aside. And then, you know, I don't say this consciously in my mind. This is never a conscious thought, but there's something in my spirit that says, if you get that, then you don't have to worry about anything anymore. Because you'd have that money over there, and things will be good. You don't really need to worry about what God's going to provide for you, because you will have provided for yourself. The gods of this culture will have taken care of you. And then 2007 came. And Washington Mutual stock went from 47 to 37. I remember telling Joan, you know, remember those shares we're going to sell at 50? You know, don't worry, it'll go up. And in a couple of weeks, it went from 37 to 27. And I remember saying to Joan, only a fool would sell now. This stock is undervalued, babe. We, this is ridiculous. And then within a few more days, it went from uh, 27 to 17. And I said, these people are embarrassing themselves with what they're doing with the, these shares, Joan. And then it went from 17 to 7. And I said, Joan, the gods of this world are telling me that I should put a significant amount of our savings into this at $7 a share because then we're going to be able to get a little something for ourselves. We don't have to worry so much. If we would just take some of what, what we had saved and we, we moved it into this, you know, then we'll be taken care of. And so I convinced my wife that we should take a good chunk of our money and we should put it into Washington Mutual at $7 a share. Does anybody know what happened to Washington Mutual the next week? It became the biggest bank ever taken over in the history of the country by the United States government. And do you know what the gods of this world gave me? Zero. Yea, though I chased them and ran around and yelled after them and gave myself to them, nobody was listening. 
Nobody came through. Now, I'm not sure what fence you're sitting on, but you're a human being. If you're here, there is in your life today, there is a fence that you have gotten yourself on. And I don't know what idol it is that you find yourself kind of sitting on a fence between uh, trusting in God fully and committing to his care for your life and trusting in somebody else. I don't know what that idol is for you. We all have different things. Mine, mine oftentimes is security, but yours could be power. Yours could be success. It could be title. It could be popularity. It could be your stuff. It could be relationships. It could be sex. It could be pornography. I don't know what it is. I don't know where you find yourself surfing that fence today. It might not even be a bad thing. It might be a good thing. How many of us make our kids God? How many of us make our spouse God? And that hurts when it comes to your spouse. Because you elevated your spouse to a place where they were never supposed to be. Maybe you've elevated chasing after a spouse to that place. And you run around and you give yourself to it and no one is listening. No response. No answers. No one paid attention. So Elijah goes on with the story. He says, here's what I want you to do now that you've done this. You, you've kind of, you look silly. Uh, I'm done with my sandwich. Go get four large jugs with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. And then when they did it, he goes, do it again. And they did it again. And he says to them, go do it a third time. And he did it a third time. So much so that the water ran down around the altar and it filled the trench. Do you have this in your mind? Fire pit in your backyard. You ever try to light some damp wood? This is wood floating in the fire pit. And Elijah steps forward and he prays. Lord, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and I am your servant and I have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord. Answer me so that these people will know that you, Lord, are God, and you are turning their hearts back again. And the fire of the Lord fell, and it burned up the sacrifice, it burned up the wood, it burned up the stones, it burned up the soil, it even licked up the water in the trench. And what happens at the end of the story? The same thing that happens at the end of every good fence-sitter story. 1 Kings 18.39, when the people saw this, they fell prostrate and they cried, I'm off the fence. I'm off the fence because the Lord is God. The Lord. He's God. See, good fence-sitter talks do that. They turn people's hearts away from the gods of their day. They, they force a decision. They bring about a crisis point and they move people off fences. So I have to ask you today, are you sitting on the fence? Are you a fence sitter? I'm good with people from non-church backgrounds because I don't come from a church background. I, did, I, don't, I don't know all the church lingo. I, some of the stuff is still kind of weird to me that we do in churches because I didn't grow up with, with some of it. Um, I'm very passionate about Jesus. And, and because of that, I do better with people outside of the church than I do with people inside of the church. And so some of you say, I've had some of you say, I need you to come talk to my friends because you're good with people that are from outside of the church. And, and, and maybe that's true. But here's where I, I have maybe not been as good, maybe where I failed. 
which is I'm good with people from outside of the church. I'm good with wooing them towards God. I can't, I, many of you have said to me, I love coming to Mendon because, John, there's something about the way that you talk about God. I get something from it. It gives me enough to live my week off. Nobody, I, nobody, nobody talks about God the way you do. I understand him when you talk about him. And so I'm good at that, maybe. But here's where I failed you. I've allowed you to sit on a fence. I've allowed you to come to church week after week, hear about God, be wooed towards God, enjoy the things of God, maybe begin to believe in God, but I've never asked you to get off the fence. Now, Jesus, as you can imagine, Jesus gives a pretty good fence-sitter talk. If anybody's going to give a good fence-sitter talk, it would be Jesus, right? And Jesus, he was always getting himself in trouble with the religious people, too. In fact, he didn't like to obey their laws. One day, in fact, he was purposely breaking their laws, and they were getting upset with him. And he said, look, you want me to obey the laws, but here's what I do. I love, because if you love right, all of the laws are filled in that one thing, love. All the commandments are taken care of. And what was really ticking them off was this one day he was healing people on the Sabbath. You're not allowed to heal the people on the Sabbath. But that's not love. And so Jesus is healing them. And it gives them an opportunity for a fence sitter talk. Here's what he said. The story goes like this. A demon-possessed man, he was both blind and unable to talk, was brought to Jesus, and Jesus healed him so that he could both speak and see. There is a sermon there. I could be done and leave it on that, right? I once was blind and crippled, and now I walk and see. The crowd had just saw something amazing. The crowd had just seen God do something they had never seen before. The crowd was totally amazed, and do you know what it led them to do? Nothing. It led them to say, maybe Jesus is the Messiah. Maybe, oh, maybe. Maybe he's the Messiah. People tell me all the time, yeah, yeah, if I saw God do some stuff, then I'd really believe. I mean, I believe a little bit. If I, got, I saw God do some really miraculous things, then I think I'd believe more. Yeah, look, I'd have to be honest, you wouldn't. You know what you would do? You'd say, well, maybe, maybe. Because we like to sit on fences. When Caroline was born, she was a little girl. I've told somebody this story before. She was born with, I think it's called an inguinal, 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 inguinal hernia. Not a big deal. Lots of kids are born with these things. And um, Caroline was born with them. And they told us right when she was born, first, first time in the hospital, she's going to have to have surgery. We're going to wait for her to be able to tolerate the anesthesia. But you're going to have to bring her back because she's going to have to have surgery. About a year goes by. Bring, bring Caroline to the doctor. He goes, yep, she needs the surgery. It's time. Bring her in uh, to, to the hospital one day. So we bring her into the hospital and... Uh, Doctor comes in, and he examines Caroline, and he goes, here it is right here. And he shows us, and he says, you can put your finger right here. You can feel this. And he goes, this is the classic inguinal hernia. It was a teaching hospital. He said, uh, this is so, such a classic inguinal hernia. He goes, I'm going to go get the interns so they can see this. So uh, this is not a big deal. Millions of kids have them. But uh, so I just went off at the corner because I didn't really want my little girl. She's a little year old baby girl. I didn't want my baby to get operated on. So I just went off at the corner. I'm just starting to pray. I'm going, God, if there's anything you do in that hospital, God, I know you really care about me. You've got that little baby. If there's just anything you could do here, God. Um, his doctor comes back in. He brings his class over. He goes, I'm going to show you, you kids the, the classic inguinal hernia. It's right. It's gone. He's feeling around. He can't find it. And he... he He's looking at the interns. He's going, well, it was here before. Um, I don't know why it's not here right now. Um, you know, you, you're going to have to bring her back in a, in, a, in a couple months. We'll check again. And you would think that I would have walked out of that room saying, 
The Lord is God. I'm off the fence. And you know what I walked out of that room somewhere in my heart saying? Maybe. Yeah, maybe. Maybe he is. But we have an amazing ability to come up with other reasons. Well, maybe it wasn't really there. Or maybe, maybe God, see, I'm telling you, that wouldn't get you off the fence. So here's what happened. When the Pharisees heard about the miracle, they said he can cast out demons because he is a demon, because he is Satan. He's the king of the devils. And now we do that all the time, right? Now Satan did it. That must have been something like, the devil made me do it. We blame miracles on other things all the time just so we can keep ourselves on the fence. Well, maybe, maybe he really wasn't sick. Maybe she really didn't have a hernia. See, Jesus knows their thoughts, and he knows your, yours and mine. And it says this. Jesus said, a divided kingdom, fence sitters. He says, a divided kingdom ends in ruin. A city or a home divided against itself can't stand. Fence sitters don't stand. If Satan's casting out Satan, he starts to argue with me. He goes, your, your argument makes no sense. He goes, if Satan is casting out Satan, he's fighting himself. He's destroying his own kingdom. And if, as you claim, I'm casting out demons by invoking the powers of Satan, then what power do your own people use when they cast them out? He goes, look, your argument doesn't make any sense. He goes, let them answer your accusation. But, remember but? But, if I'm casting out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom has arrived among you. Then you have a decision to make. Because if I am who I said I am, you need to move in one direction or you need to move in another. But you can't sit on the fence. It's famous words that he concludes the story with. You've heard them. Politicians use them. Football coaches use them. Army general uses them. But they all stole them from Jesus' fence-sitting talk when he said this in Matthew 12, 30. Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever doesn't gather with me scatters. The message translation says it this way. I love this. Jesus goes, look, this is war. There is no neutral ground. There is no fence-sitting. See, it doesn't actually exist. If you're not on my side, you're the enemy. If you're not helping, you're making things worse. Jesus is saying, you need to understand the condition of things, uh, of the world, of your soul is very serious. And, and either you are going to be transformed into my likeness and my image, and you're going to become a messenger of that, a message of redemption and healing and forgiveness and grace to your wife and your husband and your kids and your church and your town and, and your job. You're going to become that, or you're just going to be part of the problem. See, there is no Fence-sitting. And most of you probably know the most famous fence-sitting story in the scriptures. I remember my kids asking last night, what are you talking about tomorrow, Dad? And uh, they feign interest to keep their dad happy. And uh, I said, I'm talking about fence-sitting with Jesus and what the Bible says about sitting on the fence. And he immediately went to this story because he knows this story. It's a spooky one in the scriptures. If you're around the Bible, you know that um, John, who wrote the, the book of John, that you're familiar with, he wrote a second book, the last book of the Bible called Revelation. And and God is directing John, an old man now, John, to write letters to seven different churches, seven of them, to give encouragement to some and to some warnings. And he writes to a church in Laodicea. And, and what's interesting about Laodicea is it's a lot like Morris County, New Jersey. It's a lot like the promised land. People forget about God in the promised land. It's a comfortable place. It's a lush place. Uh, people find themselves filled with the brim, uh, filled to the brim with the best and the brightest. And John writes to the church at Laodicea. 
in this beautiful, affluent, comfortable saying, he says to them, to a place just like us, he says, you have a beautiful city. You've got everything the world would want. You've got a beautiful church, handsome pastor. You've got a lot of affluence. But here's the problem. You're neither hot nor cold. You're neither hot nor cold. You're, you've become a church of fence-sitters. And he says extraordinary things. He says, God wishes, this is amazing. He, God hates fence-sitters. God says, it would be better for you to be on this side of the fence. It would be better for you to eat, drink, and be merry than it would to sit on the fence. Why? Well, because a couple of reasons. First is Jesus says you're part of the problem if you're a fence sitter. And the second reason is this. God doesn't do not fully invested stuff because he is fully invested. He's fully invested in you. See, when you spill the blood of your one and only son, when you watch what the world did to him, when you watch him suffer and die for the wrongdoings of the world, and when you watch people who get it and receive grace and walk in a new way and restore a broken world, when you've given all that you've had to give, you hope that people would fall on their knees and go and move with you. But we don't. See, God doesn't fence it. Here's what the Bible actually says to the church at Laodicea. It says you make God sick. Revelation 3.16, because you were neither hot nor cold, because you continued to sit on the fence, despite everything I've done for you and everything I've given to you, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. That's what God's word is. God doesn't beat around the bush with fence sitters. John says to the church at Laodicea, you've got to get off the fence. No more one day. And so if you're here this morning, you are a human being. And because you're a human being, I know you're sitting on a fence. Now, I don't know what fence you're sitting on. It could be a fence that has to do with reconciling a broken relationship in your life. Maybe, maybe, maybe God has been whispering to you, you need to get off the fence and you need to go say you're sorry to somebody. You need to restore a relationship. Maybe you need to make contact with somebody that has left. Maybe there's some real clear instruction that God's been giving you about a family matter or a family member. And God has been calling you, get off the fence in this matter. Maybe you needed somebody to come and sit on a fence. Maybe it's something that's work-related. Maybe, maybe it's career-related. Maybe it's financial-related. You've been part of doing something that God says you shouldn't be doing. Or God's been calling you to do something and you haven't been willing to do it. And week after week, you sit there and you go, I should do it. I shouldn't do it. But you sit on the fence and you don't move. It's time to get off the fence. But most importantly, here's what I feel like God's been saying to me about, about us. It's time to get off. If you like to come and listen to John talk about God, that's awesome. I'm glad you're here. But here's the message from Scripture. I can't let you stay in that spot. You can keep coming, but I'm going to keep encouraging you to do this. You've got to get off the fence with Jesus Christ. There are no fence sitters in the kingdom of God. See, we don't do a lot of altar calls around here. Men and people told me we should do more, and maybe we should. See, we do one big altar call. We do it once a year, we do it one time, and we do it big. We throw the biggest party of the year. Everybody that's been here over the last year, maybe you've been here for a short time, maybe you came out just during Christmas and saw the Jim Brewer stuff, or 
Maybe a friend has brought you, and maybe you've just been here for a couple of weeks. But every year, I get up here, and I encourage you, for however long you've been coming to Menham Hills, or forever how long you've been a Christian, once a year, I ask if you would get off the fence. I don't ask you to, to come to the stage while the band plays. I, I don't try to, to do it with, with emotional manipulation. I don't ask everybody to put their head down and raise their hands so nobody sees. I ask you to do what Jesus asked you to do. I ask you to get in the water and be baptized. Because in the name of Jesus Christ, just publicly de declare before your friends and your family and each of us to say, I'm committed. Into your life, I give you. Into your hands, Lord, I put my life. Fellow fence sitters, here's the, here's the, the, the deal. The, the first obedience test for every Christ follower is the baptism test. That's how you get off the fence with Jesus. Remember, Jesus says, go into all the world, make disciples, and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Think about the conversion of Paul. He's a Christian persecutor. He's, he's part of the first murder of Christians. When he's converted, he's baptized on the day of his conversion. Think of the Ethiopian official who is sitting in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah. He can't understand it. Philip comes along, explains to him all of the things about Jesus. He looks around and he goes, why shouldn't I be baptized right now? Because he sees some water. In Acts 16, there's this jailer, and he's got Paul and Silas in jail. You know the story, many of you. An earthquake opens the gates. And the Philippian jailer starts to think, oh, I'm going to be killed. And Paul and Silas say, so he gets nervous. He goes, I'm going to kill myself. Paul goes, no, 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 don't kill yourself. And he explains to them the story of Christ. That happened in the story about midnight. And what does he do? Before sunrise, the Bible says, the jailer was baptized. The jailer didn't even want the sun to come up before he was baptized. He got off the fence. One writer said, when it comes to those of us who have been around the church for a while, who've been ducking getting off the fence with baptism, he said, there are many, many, many people in the church who have the Holy Spirit in them. And the Holy Spirit's been saying since the day you opened your life to Christ, you should be baptized. You should be baptized. But something inside of you says, well, you know, I'm, I'm not going to really worry about that. Uh, you know, what are my friends going to think? What's my family going to think? I don't want to worry about all that stuff. It, I know. See, let me tell you an embarrassing story. Some of you know it. I was the pastor of this church, and I had not been baptized. Now, some of you are going, well, I, you know, I, can't be I can't be baptized now because I've been a Christian for years, and if I do that, you know, people are going to think I just became a Christian if I've been a Christian for 20 years. First of all, if you're thinking that way, there's issues there, but we'll move on past that. Because if I can do it, if I can go, I have not been obedient to Christ in this. I have sat on the fence, despite the Holy Spirit whispering in my ears for years, you should get in the water. If I can do it, you can do it. See, I think so many of us have rationalized every question the Holy Spirit says to us about this. And, and we start to think, I'm too proud, I'm, I'm too important, I, I can't tell you the excuses I hear. I'm so busy in the summer, you know you have that once a year and I can never make it. I really like, you know, I want, I'm going to do it next year. I'd like to do it, but my, you know, my grandma can't make it that day, and I really want her to be there. And we laugh because we know we do it. We rationalize it. Benham Hills, there's three kinds of people in the room, okay? I'm going to conclude with this. Band, you guys can come up. There are people here that are new believers. You've been coming around to the church. You've been maybe in some small groups, and you've been saying, God is changing my life. 
I have come to understand God in this place. I, I've been coming for the last six or nine months, and I think I want to get off the fence. I think God is calling me to a relationship with him. I think it's time I get off the fence. You should get baptized in two weeks in that lake with him. Now, there are other people in this room that were like me, that were followers of God. They had been baptized when they were a little kid, and we're going to talk about all that stuff about baptism next week. But you were baptized as a little kid, and you're going, well, if I tell my mom I got baptized again, she might get offended, and I don't know, I'm going to look kind of silly. I've been a Christian for years, and I'm going to have to out myself as not having followed God. Listen, the Holy Spirit is saying to you, I'm telling you this is what the scriptures are commanding you. You should get baptized. And here's lastly, here's the, here's the third person in this room. The third person in this room is, is, is like the people of Israel who were fully committed at one time to God. They were all on board. They were Red Sea crossers. But something over time moved you back to a place of spiritual apathy where you began to walk backwards and sit down on the fence. Can't do that because I'm going to get offended. But you know what that feels like. And maybe you were baptized at one point in your life, but if you're very honest, you need to make a, a recommitment to God. You need to go before your friends, your family. You need to out yourself again and say, you know what? i got to be honest. I got myself to a place where I was not fully committed to this. And because of this church, because of what God is doing in my life, because of the Holy Spirit prompting me, in front of you all, I'm going to go and get in the water. And I'm going to tell you I am recommitting my life to this Jesus who gave his life for me. You need to get baptized. And so when you came in today, the ushers gave you a card that says, I want to get baptized. And we're going to talk about it again next week, but I would encourage you today, if the Holy Spirit is moving in your life, if you feel God whispering in your ears going, you should be committed, you should make a commitment. In the back, the ushers are going to put, Dave is back there, they'll put two baskets um, on, the, uh, on the sound booth. And when you go out today, just throw in a card that says, I want to be baptized. I'm going to send you a personal email this week and let you know how you're going to do it. Today, the Bible says, today is the day of salvation. You know what that means? Today is the day you get off of the fence. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we are a nation, we are a culture that loves to sit on the fence. We don't buy cars, we lease them. We don't fix things, we replace them. The truth is we don't even like to get married anymore, Lord. We, we just like to keep our options. And Jesus, as your people, we confess that we have become a people that like to keep our options open. Lord, convict us by the power of the Holy Spirit that it is not a safe place to be. And woo us, call us to the other side of the fence. In the great name of Jesus, we pray.